I've said on many occasions that living in between, uh, to me, is the greatest challenge of the Christian faith, uh, whether we're in between health and disease, in between unemployment and employment, in between a relationship and a new relationship, a divorce and a remarriage, or in between raising little children and hoping they become self-sufficient, in between raising teenagers and can't wait till they become adults, uh, in between anything, fill in the blank. That it seems to me, in 30 plus years of watching this, uh, I can't speak for everyone in this room, I can speak for myself and for others that I've walked with, um, faith makes up its mind in between. Because if my life is going swimmingly, my job's good, my money's good, my marriage is good, my kids are good, all things are right with the world, I don't need God. I really don't. Now, some of you may be saying, well, Michael, I, I still need God, and, and, and I mean this sincerely. Great for you. Good for you. Sincerely. I will tell you candidly, in my life, if everything goes swimmingly, I don't need God. Now, I know he's there, and I know what I believe, but it's not front and center. But when I'm in between health, sickness and health, waiting for surgery and post-surgery recovery, um, our children who break our hearts and then mend them back together, and watching people go through divorces and challenges and loss and grief and burying a loved one, and on and on it goes. That's the fulcrum, that's the angle of repose where the crush of experience meets our faith and we are driven to God. Otherwise, we don't need him. Now, the corollary to this is, is kind of frightening to me. To think that because of that, our experience in life is going to be full of challenges and trials that we can't fix, and we're in this in-between state a lot. I don't want to go too far with that, but I do think there's merit in thinking about your life experiences, mine, and when you're in between those situations, how are you doing with your faithfulness? Scripture is more than sufficient for your life and mine for our salvation history. Yet we tend to approach it as a tool book, a manual, a last resort. Let's go YouTube it to see what I'm supposed to do in the present situation. Rather than a fabric and a lifestyle of who we are as believers in Christ. Last week, Lloyd said that three overarching principles, that God was in control, that we, that I am secure in this, and the Holy Spirit works in me. And he began that message talking about fear and how we relate to fear, particularly with end times topics. And as he did, and I want to continue opening that up a little bit, this culture, this period, this decade of Christianity doesn't fret and worry about the end times like we did in the 70s. We worry about other things. But I want to raise it to a different level to ask the question, what are you fearing in between? What are you concerned about in between? And how are you living not knowing the answer that you may never know? In chapter 13 of Mark, this is called the Olivet Discourse. In the first verse, Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? Now one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. The Mount of Olives overlooked the temple complex. It's much like an ice cream cone like this. Down here at the bottom would be the city of David. In the middle would be a plateau that Herod built where the temple complex was on. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives that overlooks this whole thing. It's called the Mount of Olives because it's full of olive trees, even today. So therefore, the Olivet Discourse. It is one of the more complex sermons Jesus gives. It's deep. In 32 minutes, we can't do much with it. 
but to give you a high run overview. You could spend months literally studying this chapter and just start to get into it. The depth of theology and what Jesus is saying in this sermon of his, the longest one recorded in Mark's gospel. It is rich in prophetic language. There are three main issues in the Olivet Discourse. The end of the age, the destruction of Jerusalem, and Jesus' return, also known as the second advent. The end of the age, the destruction of Jerusalem, and Jesus' return, also known as the second advent. Those are the three big issues that Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse. Look, he said, none of those buildings are going to be there. And the disciples are going to ask a question in verse 4. Tell us then, when will these things be? What will be the sign of these things? So the rest of that from verse 4 on is the answer, if you will, to the disciples' question. Jesus is answering what the end of the age is going to be like, what the destruction of the temple is going to be like, and when his second advent, what his return will be like. Those are the three big topics in the passage. So if you keep that at a principle level then, how do you live knowing things are going to get bad at some point in life? And in the ultimate eschatological future, they're going to be bad. How do you live? Peter, James, and John ask for instruction and they give they get an answer. Now, let me give you four qualifiers, and then we'll look at the passage. First, Jesus' primary caution is see to it that no one misleads you. See to it that no one misleads you. There's more bad theology on social media and on the airwaves today than ever in my entire life. In fact, I would say it's hard to find good theology on social media or on television or on Christian radio broadcast. It's hard to find good Christian content anymore. Because there's so much that is experience-driven, that's cultural-driven, that's trend-oriented, that's market-proven. And the further away I get from that book as the mooring and the anchor of that's God's word and it hasn't changed, the more trouble I'm going to get into. Jesus told his friends, and he's telling you and me, do not be misled. Secondly, he says, don't be frightened. Now, I discussed the wars and rumors of wars are going to come, but he said, don't be frightened. We've talked about this many times. The most frequent command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Why? Because we live with fear. He didn't tell Joshua over and over, be strong and have courage, be strong and have courage, because he felt strong and was courageous. He told him to be strong and have courage because he was weak and he was afraid. You don't tell someone who's strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. You tell someone who's weak and fearful. So scripture reminds us, don't be afraid. So number one, don't be misled. Number two, don't be frightened. Number three, be on your guard. And particularly in the context, he's talking to the disciples who will be persecuted. They're going to suffer things that most of us, probably none of us in this room or hearing will ever deal with this. And fourth, the high level thing I want you to hear is because of the false prophets and the signs and wonders and being misled, because that's out there, he goes, remember, I've already told you what you need to know. Now, this is missed, and it's important. I've already told you what you need to know. Let me say it in the simplest way I can. God's sovereign, you ain't. That's all you need to know from this message. God's sovereign, you and I ain't. He's already told us all that we need to know. But the question becomes, as we move away from the mooring and the authority, we're misled. We're going to get afraid. We're going to be deceived. We're going to see signs and wonders that are false. We're going to be pulled into nonsense. And that's why it's so important to stay close to his word. Well, let's look at first 
chapter 13, verse 24, to pick up the Olivet Discourse of Christ's return. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now, as a preface, again, a reminder, there are more Old Testament uh, references and prophetic uh, cross-references in this Olivet Discourse than we have time to look at. But they're so important in understanding Jesus' argument and what he's saying in this discourse. Those days connects, obviously, to the prior section, verses 14 to 23. But more importantly, it goes all the way back to Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and following, after that tribulation. Now, the word tribulation can mean distress or affliction or opposition. In fact, current, uh, some modern English Bibles have moved away from the word tribulation and choose to use distress or oppression. Because tribulation is a loaded theological term, and those translations want to distance themselves from the discussion, is there a tribulation or not? And when did the tribulation occur, or is it coming in the future? And this is part of the whole eschatological argument in the scheme of these things. In the immediate context, people would say, well, the tribulation already came. Because when Jesus is talking about the temple being destroyed, that is going to happen in 70 A.D. under a Roman general named Titus. Not the same Titus of your New Testament, but a Roman general named Titus. He's going to tear down Jerusalem. So in a few short years after Jesus said this, they go, oh, that was fulfilled. That was the Great Tribulation. Turn the page. The problem with that interpretation is it misses all the prophetic language Jesus is using when he talks about that, referring to Joel and other passages. And that's why you've got to always keep the context flowing and not just take a verse out of context. The Great Tribulation is seen as certainly there was a destruction to the temple complex, but that was only the beginning of what was going to be destroyed. The sun will be darkened didn't happen on 70 A.D., that's an Old Testament reference in Isaiah 13, 35, a very vivid depiction of supernatural events that are going to happen in the sky. Ezekiel 32 and others. And by the way, I'm throwing a lot of verses out. I don't like to do that. But let me just tell you, if you're interested in this at that level, get a real Bible with real cross-references. And uh, go buy, you might have to go buy one because you probably don't have one. A pad of paper. And maybe some color pens and pencils, and take them home and go every one of these cross references, go look it up and write it on a piece of paper side by side with what Jesus is doing and the Olivet Discourse. You start this, you'll do it for a month. You'll get hooked. And see why is he referring to those passages in this Olivet Discourse when the question was, what's going to happen in the future? End of the age, destruction of the complex, my, second, my, my return. He's going to explain it to them as best they're going to be able to appreciate. And we have to continue to relearn because we all forget or we weren't taught these things. The sun will be darkened. All these images, keep in mind, these were prophesied, they were supernatural, and they, they had this shroud, this veil of time. All these things have to happen before Jesus comes back. That's the key. For the second advent, for him to return, all these prophetic things have to be fulfilled. They were prophesied in the past before he was on the planet in the current state. They were supernatural in nature, not just the literal destruction of a temple complex. 
and they preceded his return. That's why I think the argument the tribulation is gone or doesn't apply is a, is a poor argument because it misses what Jesus himself is saying. The heavens will be shaken is interpreted all kinds of ways. I'm going to take it literally for a number of reasons I won't bore you with. If, if God can create uh, Colossians chapter 1, if he can create uh, the earth and the sun and orbital arrangements of planets and seasons and all things he can control, if he can do that, and the Hubble continues to find hundreds of thousands of galaxies out there we don't have names for yet, if he can suspend the stars in, their, in the heaven and planet orbital arrangements, he could knock them away too. This is, there's no rationale to make this symbolic language. And I think it's literal. The heavenly bodies are going to be disrupted. Apocalyptic literature is an attempt to explain these things in our human mind. Many of these references in the Old Testament are precisely true. These things are going to happen. If he's a supernatural God who created things, can he deal with them any way he wants? God's sovereign, I ain't. And when we say science and history and the temple was destroyed and science can prove things factually again and again, all true. He's the author. He's the designer. He's the ultimate engineer. He can do what he pleases, as the psalmist said. Psalm 116, the Lord, 115, God is in his heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Well, it continues, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. These are both cross-reverence from Daniel 7.13 and Revelation 1.7. Key passages in understanding why is Jesus talking about these in this end times picture. He's going to dispatch his angels to get people from the end of the earth, from the end of heaven. It's a beautiful picture. End of the earth is speaking about people who are living. End of heaven, people who have already died. End of the earth is speaking of those who may yet have come to Christ. End of in the heaven, Old Testament saints. But he uses this interesting phrase, his elect. And for some of us, that raises the little hairs on the back of our neck. We don't like the doctrine of predestination or election. In recent weeks, in my small group, we had discussion with one individual who just couldn't accept that God predestines and elects people. He just couldn't go there. Now, this is a thing you have to study and wrestle with and, and learn. No, 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 no debate there. I did. I had spent three years after I came to Christ going, that's just unfair because I didn't understand the doctrine. I had a human perspective of what I thought it meant. Let me give you just the, the two-minute two sidebar here. The doctrine of election and predestination have no application for the unbeliever. The doctrine of election and predestination have no application for an unbeliever. It doesn't matter. If a person doesn't yet know Jesus, these doctrines don't apply. It does not matter. It's non-sequitur. The only reason these doctrines are important is for a person who comes to Christ and who knows Christ. And on his or her journey afterwards, they go, how did I get saved? How do I know I'm saved for sure? He lived. He died. He was buried. He came back from the dead. Any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone are promised a free gift of eternal life and their sins are forgiven and they enter an eternal relationship with Him. That's the package. That's the gospel. You had to learn those things. You didn't get it all at once the first time. Some of us still wrestle with, am I eternally secured? You have to learn these things. Once you're a believer in Christ and you start sorting these out, you go, well, why was I saved? I must be a little better than anybody else. No, the remarkable part of the elect is that he chose us 
And when you come to that realization, you go, why did he choose me? Because we're all in a freight train going to hell without a handbrake. You and I weren't any better than other people that have yet to come to Christ. Get that out of your head. And if you don't believe me on that account, why did he pick the Jew? The most stiff-necked, obstinate people he could have picked is a great illustration. I chose them. It may be hard for some to accept, but God's sovereign, you ain't. God set this thing in motion. It's his word, his truth, or it's our interpretation of it, our misalignment of it, our moving away from it, because we think we know better. Jesus is saying his elect, this isn't Paul, this isn't someone else, this is Jesus saying God's going to gather his elect, the ones he's chosen, from the end of time. Frequently in Deuteronomy 30, for example, verses 3 and following, there's the regathering of Jerusalem. I have friends around the country, and I mean, they're, they're good friends, but we have completely different opinions about the land of Israel. They don't think Israel matters anymore. Israel lost her chance, so forth and so on. And I say, then are we going to cut Deuteronomy 30, verse 3 and following, out of the Bible? Because God said he's going to call his people back and rebuild that nation and people group. And there's a lot of scripture that references the land. Well, it doesn't matter. It didn't apply. Well, I have a problem with that because I'm not going to cut that part of the Bible out. McKenna writes, when the sign of his coming is given, I will defy, excuse me, when the sign of his coming is given, it will defy scientists and pseudoscientists, astronomers and astrologers, but there will be no way to misread the purpose. I love the paradox. Scientist to pseudoscientist. Astronomers to astrologers, those who read the stars, there'll be no way to misread its purpose. When these things happen, there's going to be a grandeur and a breathtaking nature. We don't have time to go to the cloud, the whole cloud issue, the epiphany and the glory of God and what the cloud means in the Old Testament and New. When Christ returns, it's going to be a global recognition that people will hang, their, their mouths will be hung open. Supernatural, unreal, undeniable. I don't recommend movies for lots of reasons. If you happen to have seen The Arrival, this recent movie, I thought the most interesting part of that was how this thing appears all over the planet and how every people group responded differently to this thing. I thought, what a great analogy for when Christ comes. Different people respond differently to the thing. Because man is proud. Man thinks he knows all. Man thinks he's smart. Man thinks he can relate to it or blow it up or figure it out. God's sovereign, you ain't. When he comes in this grandeur in history, it'll be a breathtaking culmination of salvation history. And nothing on the horizontal is going to matter when Jesus returns. That's what he wants the disciples to understand. When I come back, gentlemen, this is all going to be cleared up real quickly. So how do you live in between? Well, he's going to give a simple illustration of a fig tree. This all goes back to the question they asked in verse 4. Tell us then, when will these things be? What will the sign be when these things start to happen? Verse 28. Now learn from the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation, to this, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, don't want to overwork a parable. I always caution myself and you, anyone, when you read a parable, don't overwork it. Look at what it means at the most common sense level. Uh, the, this is on the olive at discourse, the Mount of Olives he's talking about, that, which means it's full of olive trees. He's going to talk about a fig tree. Fig trees were essentially wild. In fact, when you go to Israel, we'll, we hike along what's known as Tel Dan, and uh, I like to go in the spring for lots of reasons, but there'll be fig trees, and I, I don't point them out. People point them out. Is that a fig tree? Yeah, it's a fig tree. And they'll just have a little tiny fig coming out. You know the difference between a deciduous and an evergreen? An evergreen is evergreen. It doesn't lose all of its foliage. A deciduous tree, generally speaking, not to get into debate with conifers, but a deciduous tree, like an oak or a poplar or a maple, drops all its leaves on your yard. And you get the joy of raking them all up every year, right? Or someone else has to rake them up. But when the spring comes and they start to have little shoots, you say, hey, the weather, it's getting warmer. That's all he's saying. When you see uh, a fig tree, because olives were, they were, uh, they were evergreens essentially. When you see a fig tree bud, you know summer's near. Verse 28, even so you, when you see these things happen, what's he saying? It's common sense. We talk about the doctrine of imminency, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It may be morning, it may be noon, maybe, you know, it could happen at any time. Jesus is saying when you see it, it could be at any time. Truly I say to you, that's a formula. We've talked about this a number of times in the Gospel of Mark. When Jesus says, truly I say to you, or other Gospels, truly, truly, it's like a red signal flare going off in your Bible. Pay attention to this. This is really important. This is a takeaway. This is his big idea. Truly I say to you. He's going to modify three things with this phrase, pass away. Look again at your Bible. He's going to say this generation will not pass away. He's going to say heaven and earth will pass away. And then he's going to say that the word of God will not pass away. Let's take a look at each one of them. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away. So this goes back to the conundrum. Uh, what is this generation about? Most of the time Jesus talked of generations as a wicked and perverse generation when he categorized them. There are those who believe he was talking about those who heard Jesus in this discussion and they'll, they'll live, they'll be alive until this event occurs. They're going to witness it. It, at first glance reading, that sounds like what he's saying. But we know that breaks down because a lot of those people died before 70 AD. We also have the problem with, when, when does a generate, is there a line on a generation? We talk about you know, the builder dying off now. We say all oh, the World War II bits, the builders are all dying off. Well, that's true. But let's say men in their 90s, but 89, 87, 86, are they all dying? Where does that line become? Okay, that generation is gone. You see, we got this idea in our head that there's a generation and they're dead. That's because we're putting timelines, we're putting bookmarks on things that don't really exist literally. Just because we have a date called 1920 doesn't mean in 1990 or in 2020 that generation's dead. The way the word is used in the, in the Old Testament is ancestral. So the generation of Abraham, the generation of David, the generation of Isaac, which would be a family thing. And this is why, of course, people uh, send off these little uh, DNA kits. I, I find this remarkable. Uh, I don't spend, well, anybody, if you, 
if you use Facebook, you spend too much time on it. Let's just acknowledge that. But I, I glanced through it a couple times a day, and yesterday I saw a very uh, respected friend of mine had this two giant big pictures of their DNA kits. And I went, oh, good for you. You send your little samples off, and you can find out who you really are. Good for them. Uh, my my uh, uncle says that we're from some German family I sleep. I, that's important. I mean, that's not, I'm not making fun of it. I'm just, I don't really care. Maybe you do. Good for you. Go for it, baby. The generation Jesus was talking about, was it just those who heard him? Or was he talking about it as, I think they're both wrong. Now, this is easily heresy. I'm on real thin theological ice right now, okay? If you're taking notes, take it in pencil. If you're listening online later and I'm proven wrong, I admit ahead of time I might be a heretic. I don't think that's what he means. I think he's talking about people. And I'll show you why as we continue. Secondly, heaven and earth will pass away. The experiential context that we live on a planet, that we see stars in the heavens, that telescopes and Hubbles and other things can see far beyond the finite brain can imagine, that's going to pass away. First he says this generation will not pass away, heaven and earth will pass away, and then he says my words will not pass away. An incredible reminder that the word of God is eternal. Nothing can thwart, distort, or stop Christ's words. Now, literature in the New Testament is different than any book you read. It's supernaturally intended by the Holy Spirit author, the big A, and the little author Mark in this case. This is a framework, these three times he's saying it, will not pass away, will pass away, will not pass away. What are the two things eternal? God's Word and God's people. So I'm going to suggest, in pencil... When he says this generation, he's talking about humanity. Because humanity lives forever. His word lives forever. The thing that's not going to live forever is the experiential context that we worry about. Stuff on heaven and stuff on the earth, it's going to be gone. Otherwise, why does he tell them the parable? Well, that's my heresy for the day. Let's go back to the Bible. Verse 32, that day or hour no one knows. The second coming is veiled. We don't know the precise time it's coming. If I would sum it up, I'd say don't live in fear, live in faith. Don't live in fear of the what ifs. And again, the 70s were an interesting time when the late great planet Earth and the great tribulation stuff was coming out. They, they used to have these conferences with these uh, big name Bible teachers. You know, you talk about passion today. Uh, the passion in that day were these prophecy conferences. And thousands of people would go to these conferences to hear these different Bible teachers talk about the end times and argue about schemes. Nobody cares today. They care about other things today. It all kind of changes with the decades. But don't live in fear. Live faithfully. Well, his exhortation finally then to be alert, verse 33. Take heed, keep on the alert. Now I want you to notice four times we're going to read that phrase. Keep on the alert. For you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man who went away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one a task also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. There it is again. Therefore, be on the alert. There it is again. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Fourth time. So we begin in chapter 13 with be on guard, and we end with be on the alert. That frames the entire Olivet Discourse. 
Be on guard and pay attention. Let's take a look at this. Four times keep on the alert. Translation is a, is a funny business. It's a complicated business. Babel ruined everything. And because of this, when we translate Greek into English or English in other languages or any translation, there's always a challenge. There's not always a word-for-word -word equivalency. It's tough. These are two words in Greek that we have to use four or five to explain in English. The word take heed is one word in Greek, and the word keep on the alert is one word in Greek. It would really be something like, look, diligent. That would be a hard way to read for the English mind, but that's the construct. Pay attention, observe, see, look, and then diligent. Keep watch, be cautionary, those kind of expressions. Why does he say it four times? Because we're not real good at it. Repetition is always the mother of education. The synoptics include the brief parable of the absent owner. The man leaves. He puts the house in, in charge of his servants or slaves, not the way we think of the word today in the first century. Indentured servants often indentured themselves because they were poor. That was the way they made a living. There, was no social, there were no entitlements or handouts. You went to work. And so you worked for a landowner, typically, or a vineyard owner, and they gave you a wage. So these servants are left in charge. The homeowner goes away. The point of the, the, the parable, though, is the doorkeeper. The king's English used the word porter. It leaves the porter in charge. Sounds like an important job. What's the porter's job? Stay awake. Be alert. Any of you have been in the military, if you enlisted uh, and you served time in the military, um, worst duty in the world is pull is the guard. Watch. Middle of the night. My son was in the Marine Corps for a time, and he hated night watch. He just hated it. And he said, that's why he's dead. That's why everybody dips, because it's only you stay awake. You're standing out there on your post by yourself in the middle of the night for four, six hours, whatever it is. And he goes, you better not be found asleep. You'll rue the day if they find you asleep out there. It's hard work to just stay awake when everything's boring. But that's the message that he's giving his disciples. Interesting, he says, I will say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Pay attention. You do not know when the master of the house is coming. Some of you Shawshank fans might remember the scene where the warden comes into Dufresne, Andy Dufresne's cell and Dufresne's holding the Bible and the warden takes the Bible away from him and says, glad to see you're reading the good book. Do you have any favorite passages? And Dufresne quote, quotes the King's English on Mark 13, 35. Watch ye therefore, ye know not when the master of the house cometh. Great scene. That's all for free. Sorry. Keep working, keep watching. Uncertain time, certain return. God's sovereign, we ain't. So how do we live in between? This book is sufficient for your life of faith, period. God's word is immutable, it's infallible, it's true, it's timeless. Culture and those who are going to teach you things, Jesus warns about false teaching, I'm warning you about most of what you're reading and seeing is mishmash. Come back here. If you can find a clear line here to what they're saying, pay attention. You can't find a clear line, be aware. Be careful. Be good thinkers. Good questions deserve good answers. Nothing wrong with asking a good question. Nothing wrong with wrestling with a doctrine you don't understand or like. I get that. I'm not saying you have to agree with everything I agree or believe or teach. Uh, once in a while when um, I'm feeling a little 
uh, proud or, or congratulatory, I go back and read Job 38 and following. And if you don't know the story of Job, it's, it's the longest Old Testament book in the Bible. It's the hardest Old Testament book in the Bible. It starts with everything's great, and it's called comic literature because then it's just this disaster of events that happen, and then at the end it's all resolved. So comic, you can smile, comic literature. Happily ever, happy, incredible, terrible, everything. My favorite line in the book of Job when he says to his friends, sorry comforters are you all. I love that line. Uh, so everything's right, and then it's just miserable, miserable. All his friends giving him counsel and bad advice. Then chapter 38, you want to talk to God? You want me to answer your questions, Job? And you just read those questions and put them in your own words. Where were you when I did this? Can you change the weather, Job? Can you open and close the gates of the sea? Do you know when an animal gives birth up in the mountains? Can you tell the time of the day? And just all these questions he just pummels Job with. And of course Job's answer is, you know, I repent, I retract in dust and ashes. Or the paraphrased version, you're sovereign, I ain't. So, you're living in between. Our challenges of how we view life in between disease and health, divorce and Health and remarriage, if that's the trajectory. Raising difficult children and pushing out healthy adults. Uh, moving. Financial things. Whatever. When you're in between, and that's where the fulcrum of faith begins, what do you believe? Do you really believe this? Because otherwise, I'm not speaking for you. I'm speaking in broad strokes. Most of us just really don't need God. But when you're in that in-between, this is the mooring. Not people's experiences. God's people are going to last forever. The world and the heavens will be gone. God's word lasts forever. The idea of a lifelong submission to the words and work of Christ is a novel idea. But it's the right idea. We might spend way too much time in a self-created Christianity that is wrought with bad theology and experiential motivations. Or we come back and realign ourselves to a biblical theology of what he did and didn't say. Don't miss, they told the disciples, I already told you. Which tells me there's enough here to live a life of faith. I already told you. Do you think you have an original question? Maybe you do. Doesn't matter because he told you the answers to what you really need to worry about. You know, in college, my professors taught for 64 years. He said his favorite question in class was, because he always says, there's no stupid question, no stupid question, no stupid question. His favorite question in class was the guy would say, Prof, is that going to be on the exam? That's all he wanted to know. Was it going to be on the test? That's not an education. That's just passing the test. I already told you. The question is, do you know what he has said? Titus chapter 2, verse 11, I close with a passage that I would use as a prayer commentary when the older statesman Paul is telling the young Titus how to lead a church. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's coming. Keep alert. Pay attention. 
when we uh, have a security team here, you probably know about, we are taught we go through hundreds of hours of training to keep you and your kids safe every weekend. And one of the things we're taught early on is the color code system, white, yellow, orange, and red. White is oblivious. White is when you drive into a parking lot at Walmart today, perhaps, and you park by a van without paying attention, and you're fussing with your keys and your purse and your phone and whatever, and you're getting out of your car, and you're not looking, and you're walking to the store like this, looking at your phone, and that's condition white. That's, that's oblivion. That's idiocy. That's not being smart. Condition yellow is relaxed alert. Relaxed alert. Just paying attention. You don't park by a van. You park out in the middle of the parking lot. You park under a light at night. You get all your gear ready before you open your door. You just look around a little bit before you walk to the store. You walk to the store. You, you know, guys, keep your wallet in the front pocket. Women, eliminate some of the stuff you don't, don't carry you know, the weekend with her. You know, just a little bit all you need. Uh, carry what you need to go in there. You don't need the whole universe. And you're just smart. It's relaxed alert. You're paying attention. You pay attention to what you pay attention to. Orange is when you feel a threat or anxiety or worry. And the rule that we're all taught is get out of there. Get out of the orange. Run away. Go home. And in fact, better than going from white to yellow, just shop on Amazon Prime. Don't go to Walmart to begin with. That'd save you a lot of, of this whole nonsense. Red is when you're in a fight. Red's when it's too late. White's oblivious. Yellow is relaxed alert. Orange, you're in a conflict. Red's too late. I want you to live in a spiritually yellow world. Relaxed alert. Relaxed alert. Pay attention. Be on the alert. Don't worry about it. Be faithful, not fearful. And look for his return. Have a great week. God bless you.